The life of Dionne McPherson to date appears to be a rounded life of positive, perpetual energy and motion. Far from being content having landed the dream job at Google, her and her husband Dean started Paperform. They have since met Google and a range of industry giants head-on and have stood out above the crowd. If you listen closely to this episode of Discipline, you'll hear a realist who cares deeply for her clients, who understands and thrives in business operations, who knows that feedback from friends is not the same as feedback from paying customers, and someone who trusts that people won't confuse candor with being impolite. Dionne is as down-to-earth as you can get, still living the old adage that the customer is always right, and intuitively moving a technology software as a service business forwards by backing the quality of her product, her husband and business partner, and her team. Enjoy our discussion. Dionne McPherson, co-founder of Paperform, welcome to Discipline. Thank you, Tony. Awesome to be here. Now, we're going to get to your incredible background in culture and the classics, and your transformation into a SaaS entrepreneur. But let's start by casting your mind back. When you were growing up, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I saw The Sound of Music and The Flying Nun when I was about four or five and I just wanted to be a nun, uh, which, you know, obviously did not happen at all. Uh, But I think what appealed to me was this, uh, this ritual that's involved in, um, in your existence and something bigger than yourself. And as a little kid, I just loved that. And then very shortly after that, I moved to, my mum was pretty worried because I walked around the house, literally dressing, trying to dress myself as a nun. Um, It was pretty intense. And then I moved pretty quickly into wanting to be a vet. And for a very long okay. time, yeah, I wanted to be a vet. Also, I <clears throat> I always had a, a passion for ancient history. I just loved it. Yeah, so that's what you've done then. You've, you've, you've taken an incredible journey into languages and museum studies and uh, more academic uh, rigour through being a, a tutor and an interpreter, yeah. uh, assistant curator at museums. So uh, you really have dived in deep into the arts and the classics um, how did that quantum shift take uh, place or was it organic, as you say? Yeah, so I, I very quickly, like I said, I became very interested in, in how people think and what motivates behaviour and then how that impacts reality, um, how it, it has a profound impact on the world. And I, I grew up with, in a household where uh, we had English as a default language, but my father's Dutch, he speaks uh, Dutch and my mother's family are mixed but predominantly speak German so language has always appealed to me um, I remember making a little book actually I completely forgot that I did that when I was little um, of German phrases my own little book and I would ask my grandfather who lived with us and my mother uh, what a particular phrase meant and then I would write down the English equivalent so I just loved this documentation and an understanding of language um, so when I got to the end of uh, high school and I was interested in human behaviour, I actually, after high school, I, I went into psychology. So I did a Bachelor of Science Psychology at Australian National University um, for about a year and a half, two years. And then I realised that uh, that was all well and good, but it, I didn't mind it, but it wasn't what I was really passionate about. Right, and I kept okay. coming back to languages. Yep. So, yeah, then I, then I went into... Uh, ancient history and archaeology at Macquarie University. You, you've gone down this path. You've gone to Macquarie. You've, you've you've done a lot of study in the classics and the arts. And then, at some point, um, 
you find yourself at Google. So you've gone still in culture and the arts, but now you've gone from a more analog kind of space into a digital space. Uh, how did you get that job? How did that role find you? Again, really, I think if I had to pick one word to describe my career path and my life, it's organic, uh, which has been a really positive thing. So when I started out in in ancient history and archaeology at university, I had the most incredible supervisor, Stephen Llewellyn. I will completely embarrass him. Uh, and he pulled all of his students uh, who were dedicated into uh, publication and peer review work very early on. Uh, and so we got a taste really early on of what, of what it was like to engage with academics in the sphere. And while it was really incredible in a lot of ways, uh, I, I found myself often frustrated that I wasn't able to to share what we were finding uh, and our theories with a general audience and also to to speak to them in terms that they understand. So th there's always been this frustration, I guess, with me along the way of having these things that I think should be accessible uh, and able to be appreciated by a, a more general audience and, and really uh, believing that most people, it's a very crude way of saying it, but most people aren't dumb. Um, most people aren't uh, stupid. They can appreciate and understand what's happening, but uh, we often make people feel that way or exclude them through, yep. you know, purely by the terminology that we use or the lack of education around terminology is probably a better way of saying it because, um, yeah, I think anyone can... It's, it's part of my passion for language as well. I think anyone can start to appreciate terminology as well if they're given the chance. And so how do you become a bridge between... Uh, the, you know, uh, consumers, viewers, users, whatever, and uh, the content. And Google was offer offering that as a as sort of, you know, a, a democratization of culture. Yeah. So I, I mean, the job at Google came up, and it just because I, I loved I loved the use of tech when I was in museums and working museums and galleries to uh, facilitate the process of very so very administrational. So facilitating the, the process of getting an exhibition together. Um, and really obvious holes there that could be filled. Uh, and then also using it to show collections to the public. So then like you know, user facing, I guess, would be the equivalent of what we would say now. Uh, and then, yeah, this job came up for Google and they didn't advertise it as for Google because I think then they get a stupid amount of applicants that are maybe not even interested in that role. They just advertise the role through another company. Right. Um, That's yeah, smart. so I just applied for this role. And Dean and I were overseas. We were travelling oh my goodness, we were traveling in Europe and then, you know, they, they got my CV and uh, contacted me and said, hey, you're up for an interview in two days. And we were in uh, Rotterdam at the time and we were going to be in München, in Munich uh, for the interview. And, and that's when I found out it was with Google and, and what was at the time the Google Cultural Institute, which is now Google Arts and Culture, they rebranded. You know, for all intents and purposes, what you've told me, you've landed a job that sounds like this perfect role for your uh cultural knowledge and your love of languages and culture and then the building the, the bridge and being that conduit to the accessibility for people to be able to access it and then at some point you start your own business uh, during this journey and, and and leave it i mean so how does that all fit in how did you start paperform and uh, what was the timing like yeah, so working at Google Arts and Culture for a while, really loving it, loving being the in-between between product and development and uh, uh, users who had their own viewers. 
um, and helping them to represent themselves well uh, and communicate. And then also all of the fun operational and project management stuff that comes because, you know, when you're working for Google Arts and Culture, there's the, there's the tech side of it that's, I guess, software. And then there's the hardware, which is incorporating Street View and working with the Street View team and their logistics to get equipment into certain facilities and, and um, doing some really, really cool stuff. So doing that for a while. And then Dean and I, and Dean was working in a tech uh, startup uh, called Townsky. We both loved our jobs and we loved the people that we worked with. We weren't dissatisfied in our jobs, but we were frustrated First of all, by the, the simple fact that if we wanted to afford a property in, in Sydney, which we loved, you know, we've traveled the world and um, as expensive as it is, Sydney is an incredible place to live and we recognize that. And so we're like, okay, we do want to live here. But to be able to afford a basic, like a, a family home um, is no mean feat. <laughs> uh, and having standard salaries, you, you know, you've got to be earning a decent amount to be able well, to afford that. Yeah, it's an expensive place to set up shop very very expensive so that that was one huge part of it is we said well um these jobs are great but how can we uh how can we really be paid for the 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 value of what we can like the full extent of what we can offer so what's something that we can do where we can just fly we can just run with our ambitions and and more than anything take take ownership on authority Uh, i think for any job if you're a very ambitious person, there's always that ceiling that you hit in terms of authority and ownership where you want to take a project where you, you know that it needs to go, but you're constantly going to hit this layer of bureaucracy where you need to get permissions and things like that. And that's part of checks and balances. But uh, if you have, if you're married to someone who's an incredible web developer, yeah, it helps. Then, yeah, then that helps, you know, um, you, you can work with them to create a business and, and, and that appealed, that really appealed to us. And Dean and I always had, I would describe it as an electric electric um, dynamic where every day we would just talk to each other about what we could do with this and that. And, um, and it was always exciting. And we would, from day one, you know, we've always argued, I say argue well, we've always argued well um, and, and enjoy that too. I think debating with each other and um, kind of, uh, provoking the other a little bit as well. Uh, maybe that's a very Aussie thing to do. Well, but. I don't know. They, and they do say you get the best results through uh, good advocacy. So, you know, having a, a good thrashing out of ideas often leads to, you know, good compromises and, um, you know, possibly the right path. And uh, I'll get, I'm actually going to get to that, uh, the, the best parts about working with your, with your partner. But I did want to sort of try and stay on this uh forming of paper form and the and the and the the genesis of this idea and how you decide to leave good paying jobs and take a leap of faith into the tech unknown so so uh dean was like i i want to play i want to have fun and he's like that he can spend hours just reading about new tech for the the hell of it and and playing around with stuff it's what he loves and so he was doing that and he, he, he started, uh, we had uh, friends, family, community members reaching out to him because the previous job he was in was, was making forms for enterprise. And they would come to him and say, can you build us this form, especially for events, for this event registration form for this, that and the other. And we were like, why is this happening? There are about a million different solutions out there. This is a saturated market. And we very quickly realized it was because uh, there were pain points that weren't being addressed, obviously. 
Uh, it's where we get our slogan from, easy, beautiful, yours. So the, the way that people were creating forms, we felt was not the, the easiest. So this idea of drop and drag being easy and fast, uh, we didn't buy into. I think it was just what was done and traditional. Yeah. And therefore, people assume that it's the easiest way to do it. And people get sold that idea because the the market's entrenched in that. Yes. We're like, no, 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 we can do this easier. Let's let's make forms like you would a doc. I was like, why? I was sitting next to Dan, like, why can't you just type on a page, insert an element, question, and then move on? Um, and he was already there. He's like, yeah, check this out. And so, you know, he, we have always have this dynamic where he makes something and then shows it to me. And so he did that. Uh, he would wake up at 5 a.m. before work and, and kept working on it because it was validating uh, these these pain points, uh, something that was beautiful because forms need to engage. People think that, especially if they're administrational, they don't need to engage and that's rubbish. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get a response out of anyone for anything, it needs to be clean visually so they can bring their thoughts together. Yep. Um, but also you want to entice them and you want, you want to really imbue trust and you've got to, you've got to do that by showing your brand. That's one thing that I learned at, at Google is that uh, something looking beautiful isn't just about it being pretty. Yep. It's about communicating brand and uh, making someone feel like uh, I always say it's like the it's like the equivalent of walking into a store. You know, when you walk into a store, you know you can trust them because their brands around, their stocks out, and you can engage with them. Uh, and it's no different for for tech and especially for forms where you're getting data and or payments yep. and or files or whatever else it might be. Uh, you've got to be able to to bring all of that to the table in order to get a response from people and even more so online because people by default don't trust and probably shouldn't. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, and then yours is part of that too, the branding. And so uh, Dean developed this MVP and uh, got it out on beta list and I was kind of involved. I was like sussing it out. And for me, if I commit to something like that, it's a big deal. So my attitude when he asked me, do you know, um, do you want to be involved in whatever this is going to be? I uh, was hesitant, not because of him or because I didn't like the idea, but when I commit to something, it's I'm in. And so I had to stop and be like, okay, if I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And operationally speaking, uh, I love operations. It means huge amount of investment, establishing companies and making sure our finances are sort sorted from the beginning and all this sort of thing. So uh, yeah, uh, when I saw what the product was turning out to be, and talking to Dean more and more about it. Eventually when he did ask me, do you want to be part of this? I was like, okay, I'm in, but I'm really in. So uh, so MVP went out, I think in June, and then we got some really good responses from Beatlist, uh, but only two to 300 people. Um, and the feedback that we got from that, as opposed to when we launched later on in December with paying customers, it was miles apart, getting, getting feedback from people who put cash in your hand who say i need something to do i need this product to do something yesterday uh is is really what you need so i like if if i could give uh any advice i kind of hate giving advice sometimes because i think oftentimes a, a product and a company situation is very specific and uh, so it's hard to apply generic advice um, to every business but if i was going to say something it's get an MVP, a, a high quality, but simple MVP out as soon as possible. And if you can get it into the hands of paying customers. Yep. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree. I think, um, you know, the way I, I might've even described it on discipline previously is that when you're um, playing poker with monopoly money 
the decisions that you make in terms of how you bet or when you raise or even go all in uh, are kind of moot because there's no real um, pain involved in the decision. If you lose Monopoly money, big deal. But if you're going to put your house on a on a you know on five cards you want to go through your decision matrix uh, a bit more thoroughly and with a bit more diligence and i think it's the same for uh, customers that are giving feedback if they're really committed to the process then they're putting their hands in their pocket and actually paying for it and you're entitled to treat that feedback as gold every other person who's giving feedback that isn't really paying is not really committed they don't really care um you know they'll tell you a whole bunch of things but they're probably not relevant to what they actually need because they're so yeah it's it's backing the quality of your product as well so we have a 14-day free trial um if they're a really large corporate we might extend that because i understand you've got to get permissions from different people to to push the, the idea over the line uh, but aside from that, we we don't go past it. And uh, I think for Payperform in particular, we need to give the free trial because it is its own beast. It, it's a form builder, but it's so much more than that now, especially. Yeah, I, I'm completely with you. I, I think back the the uh, the quality of your product. And there's sometimes Dean and I are like, maybe we just scrap the free trial and, and people have to appreciate this and jump on board. It, it's, it goes. I think for us, especially with paper form being the type of tool it is, we we wanted to from the beginning. I wanted to have insanely good support. I think because I recognised early on that this was going to be a very robust tool. So we launched the, the MVP uh, as in in beta in June, but then we we launched with a deal site called AppSumo, uh, which quite frankly I wouldn't. I'm very open about this. I would not do it again. But as a way of launching, getting your product into the hands of paying customers that are the demographic and segment that, that likes having deals. Uh, they're very vocal about what they want the product to do and they're, they're really well-versed in using different products. Yep. So like that, they'll buy a deal just because it's a good deal rather than because they genuinely need the product, but then they'll go in and use the product. Guilty. Yeah, and, they, and they'll tell you what they, and they have, you know, this idea of, and this, this notion of an expectation and entitlement of what it should do. Mm. So they're great to launch with. Um, and a great way to, for us to to raise capital for ourselves as a as a bootstrap company. It's yep. funny that's the that's the one thing where like uh, I, I think I would say the the inverse of not I think thinking that this was going to be a lifestyle business for us was a really good way for us to start because we just went with sustain, sustainability and I'm big on that anyway. But we we didn't have any notions of of raising capital. Um, in any other way than just selling the product uh, and, and building it slowly and gradually and sustainable that way. And wanting to pay ourselves a salary was a, for me, it was a, a massive indication, an indicator that the business was working, that it was sustainable. It wasn't just the adoption of the product. It wasn't just the progression of the product and its reception. It was also the operations of the business yep. uh, being able to support us as a team. And so we made the leap from our so we worked full-time and then did paper form until march we launched in december and then we did like three months of both and it was insane and it was insane because the support that we needed to provide for this product we wanted it to be high quality and so uh, i would get up multiple times a night and check because our user base was was and still is predominantly in the united united states i would get up 
every few hours and jump on support because you can't beat live conversations uh, no. with customers. You just can't. You need to be talking to them. Yep. Even like as a founder, I think I hope that as our, our team continues to grow, I can still do at least that little bit of support every week because there's so much that that I and that Dean and I both absorb kind of kind of through osmosis, just like uh, th- there's the stuff that I can articulate and extract from the experiences and conversations that I have. But then there's stuff that I just soak up like a sponge without realizing it. And then later on when we're making either micro decisions or bigger decisions, we there's a lot that we just inherently know about our user base yeah. and customers and we can make much better decisions. It's it's a it's a it's a really good point. I think with a lot of um tech businesses in particular, there's you know, there's focus on the product and the product does sort of determine whether or not you're gonna be successful, but there also has to be a real understanding of where that product fits with the customer. And, you know, a lot of people, I've worked in a lot of tech sort of businesses now where a lot of people give you a lot of anecdotes about what the product should be. And by speaking to customers, I think you're able to get a better feel of whether what the customer's saying is uh, replicated over a, a subset of customers. And then you're able to dice that up and say, Yes, but we don't actually want them for our customers. They're not going to be representative of our uh, of our target market going forward, or they are. So we need to listen to them. And you're able to slice and dice that in in almost a real time fashion, and say, you know what, that that was good feedback, but I'm going to ignore it because uh, that's not where we want to go, or I'm going to take that on board because that's what the customers saying. We're hearing it time and time again. If we don't move in that direction, uh, we're going to isolate ourselves from all these people who would buy the product and i don't think there's any substitute for that in terms of getting an mvp to product market fit super quick yeah i 100 percent agree with that um and it's a two-way street as well the the conversations that you have uh with those customers you're i mean you're gaining a lot but that you're also bringing them into into that journey and doing that you, you can't really do that later on uh, it's not scalable, but in the early days, bringing people uh, into that, the amount of, of amazing customers that we had early on who I think really felt like and maybe to this day feel like they're part of Payperform and almost part of the Payperform team because of the conversations that we've had, uh, it, it's just unreal. And it, it, it was important. We grew, I mean, it's easy to grow to grow by what sounds like a significant amount um, in the early days, but we grew 15 to 20% month on month. Uh, for the first year, pretty much purely through word of mouth and then the the opportunities that came out of word of mouth through the support conversations that we had. Uh, the, the biggest frustration that I have is a, is a disconnect in tech in particular between marketing and growth and support and understanding what you've just described, the importance of, of being, I guess, in the front line, for lack of, of a better way of saying it, and, and really understanding the segments personally so it's one thing to extract data and information and segment that and that's all well and good there's there are things that you can glean out of that and apply um it's one thing to sit back and have that have your users as data and extract that data and then make decisions and try and segment them and compartmentalize them it's another thing to sit down with a real human being <laughs> and have a conversation with them i don't think that the marketing and growth can do that all the time that's that's not their primary role but i think a huge amount could be benefited by spending some of the time in those conversations and yeah. and the the i've been thinking about this a lot lately the 
um, the creative, uh, the ideas that come out of that are so much more creative sometimes with growth. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the opportunities, like, you know, we, we'd be talking to someone and then all of a sudden they'd say, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm actually from the team at Zapier. This would be unreal to integrate with sooner rather than later. Let's expedite your integration. And yeah. we were like, it's unbelievable. And then later on Zapier talks to Entre- entrepreneur magazine and says, there's this unreal app that's just come out. Uh, our users are just loving it. Uh, you should do a piece on it. And then all of a sudden there's a, a piece published that, um, that we didn't even realize was coming out from Entrepreneur Magazine. So the opportunities that are there in terms of growth and marketing are huge. And uh, I, I wish there was more appreciation for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes I think uh, those, you know, those little nuggets of gold are, are hidden. Um, and again, a lot of people in tech hide behind the, the keyboard. And, and that's fine. I mean, you can develop great product, but I sort of... Um, you know, I've I've always had this belief. If I was to be uh, honest and say a sales founder or a technical founder, which one would you choose? I would choose a sales founder ten times out of ten because I think uh, a sales person or someone who's able to engage with the customer is going to nail it quicker than a brilliant technician who's sitting in a vacuum putting out this incredible code, not knowing whether it's actually going to integrate into a customer's business or have all the things that they're actually going to see as value. And until you've had those conversations, uh, you don't know, you, you, you're kind of guessing. You've, you've touched on something that's, that's, I think, really important there as well, though, in terms of a team, right? Marketing and growth, so important. Tech, so important. Another frustration that I had, again, was the disconnect between users uh, and and tech in previous roles where I had to go out of my way to really convince the tech gods that, you know, this thing was worthy, <laughs> worthy of their time. <laughs> um, and realizing that you can have a product that's really logical, but that's not human. People don't operate very logically at all most of the time. So yeah. while you have a, a, a product that has to work very logically on the back end um, and in parts on the front end, the way that the UI has to involve users yep. can't, can't mimic that it has to be interpreted again we come back to interpretation interpreted for the users uh and that's where i think having those conversations every day yeah i mean there's a couple of really interesting things there i mean uh, i can't remember who it was might have been someone from andreessen horowitz suggested in a paper that the most important person in a SaaS business is your product lead the person who has that uh, uh, conduit between tech and customers the second thing that I thought was interesting is, you know, you talk about uh, being dissociated from, um, you know, different companies, having the that sales team or that customer team is dissociated from the tech team. When you're a husband and wife team, I, I guess that's, uh, that's a little bit different. And I suspect as well, uh, you know, you've got different kinds of leverage in that relationship as well when uh, you're working on a business together. And um, sort of leads me to my next question, um, you know, at what point along that journey do, did you actually stop or you and Dean actually stop and go, wow, I think we've created uh, a bit a bit of a business here? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like I said, we started it as a, as a lifestyle business and uh, the intention was it was supposed to be that we were kind of working smart, which we, we always advocate for that, uh, working smart rather than working stupid hours. 
Um, but yeah, the business, it took off much better than we had anticipated. And because we're so ambitious, we got to a point uh, towards the end of 2018 where we were like, okay, this is going much better than we had anticipated. Either we, uh, either way, we recognize this is no longer going to be a lifestyle business. Um, business failures so uh, you did, failures. yeah so you did did you try and launch an app called curve once upon a time that didn't go quite quite as planned what did you learn from that uh that was the beginning of the same year that we launched paperform funnily enough uh what did i learn from that that it is really really hard to establish a business that simply tries to do good uh, when it requires a decent amount of effort from people, um, probably we could have been much better with our messaging and empowering people to, or, or engaging people to be part of the movement. Uh, basically what happens is in Sydney, um, probably in lots of parts around the world, you have uh, council pickup days. So people leave their, their junk and second-hand furniture, whatever, uh, out on the street, and then council comes and picks it up and takes it away. Uh, and there's this uh, culture in the inner west where we're from in Sydney where uh, you walk down the side of the road and you see something really cool and you call your mate and say, hey, I, this lamp is unreal. We need this lamp. Can I send you a photo and tell me whether or not you want it? And so we thought, how, how can we um, facilitate that process? Yeah. Uh, so Dean built a simple app and using geolocation and everything, you're able to take a photo, upload the photo and post it uh, via Google Maps, um, giving someone an opportunity to come and collect it. They could collect it and then market as collected. Simple, you know. Um, we didn't have any ideas for, for monetization at that point or anything like that. It was It was kind of just like a fun adventure to see yeah. what we could do with this. Um, but... To a man talking to talk about failure, talking to councils, sitting in a, I'll never forget sitting in a room with eight different people from one council, uh, and just the logistics that you have to go through to make that legal, and then legal across different uh, regions or areas uh, or divisions of council. Um, it, you know, all of them operate differently, and there's different legalities involved, uh, and you have to ensure that you're not liable. So you can. The stuff can be on the curb, but it can't be in someone's front lawn. And uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. so so it definitely did not work. No adoption. Very people, very little people use it. I think like a couple of our friends and maybe my mum used it. Yes. <laughs> Is it was there any point? Do you look back at it and you and, and along the journey, you go, someone had said something to me. There was a bit of advice that I heard, but I kind of ignored it. And I, uh, you look back and go. Oh, maybe I should have listened to that. That was actually no. Good I wish they did. Okay. I've had moments in my life, um, particularly with bad boyfriends, where someone said to me, "Okay, this is not a good idea." But no one did. I wish they did, Tony. Uh, probably didn't I drop a lot of money on failed it. Is adoption right? Yeah. We didn't find a way to get people engaged or on board, uh, and then the the mountain of uh, uh, obstacles that we faced uh, legally. Let's move on. Uh, there's a lot of pretenders in the startup uh, space, tech tech space. How do you have you been able to shield yourself from all all the people that come crawling out of the woodwork, the the pretenders and hacks wanting a bit of your time? Have you got a have you got a good bullshit radar? Do you think? Yeah, I didn't at first, and also because you you want to. It's good to engage in in most opportunities early on. I think it is good to bite back. But then the people that come to you with opportunities early on. 
aren't the entrepreneurs. They're the, the people who usually are quite genuine. So now, I yeah, I, I think I've got a, a, a really good radar and I'm just really candid. I think one of the best things to come out of running a business is candor and and not confusing candor with being impolite. Yeah. Uh, so no matter who it is, I, I very rarely get narky. I try and, and if I respond, I respond. There's a quite a few where they just go straight to trash if they make it through to my inbox. Yeah. Because uh, it's really easy to pick a very generic email. Yeah. Uh, if they make it through and I read it, the, the, the single most frustrating thing I have is when someone emails me and they say, I've got this amazing idea, it'll be great and partnership and blah, blah, blah. And they don't tell me what it is. Mm. Everyone is so time poor. If you, if you have a good pitch, give your pitch straight up, yeah. give it in the email, keep it simple. Yeah. Don't give me some vague inclination and then say, I just need to jump on a call. Uh, or I had someone the other day say uh, they had a decent report on our market and they said oh we've got this report it includes you we'd love to share it with you and i knew i was like don't buy it back don't buy it um no not buy it back don't buy it but i was like no 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 i'll just you know my marketing team were interested in it i'm like okay i'll just engage yeah. and so i wrote back and i said okay great um thanks for sure for including us in the report please share it please share it or send it over and then they wrote back and they said oh uh, i just need a few minutes of your time jump on the call and i wrote back and i just went no either send me the report or um or don't go it's away up to you uh thanks very much all the best bye yeah so i think being really honest um, yes is the best thing but that's how i deal with it i'm pretty candid and i think the, the higher the profile you you get the more sort of door knocker door knockers come out and the more kind of hey i'm a, I'm a b2b expert i can guarantee you i'll increase your sales by 500 percent year on year if you only give me 15 minutes of your time i think it's really um yeah, I, I think the interesting ones are the ones that are significant. They're bigger players. They've been around for a while, but their pitch is kind of outdated or doesn't sit with where their market is at the moment. So, for example, uh, we, as part of paper, on paper form, you can display images in a range of ways. Uh, so pay, the forms essentially can operate just as a form or you can create something that's more of a landing page. We call it a landing form. So you can create this really beautiful narrative, include images, and then ask people to enter information, which usually gets a better response. And so we attract uh, some of the larger image distribution uh, marketplaces. Yep. So we had one of the, a, a really prominent player come out and, and say, oh, we're interested in partnering with you and in integration directly onto the platform, blah, 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 which sounded really cool. And then when we met with them, it was obviously just a pitch for us to purchase their corporate package, which was like hundreds of thousands, a stupid amount of money. And so you have, have them and, and it's just not attractive because yeah. then you've got other companies like um, Pexels or Unsplash who have uh, monetized in a completely different way and have a huge amount of their content, which is free, um, uh, which are much more attractive for us. And so it's really easy to say to these big players, look, it's never going to happen. It's just not worth yeah. the ROI. Yeah, well, I'm going to take a 50-50. I'm going to call Getty Images or Shutterstock and... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I won't, <laughs> won't go any further than that. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, what about uh, your key strengths now? You, you know, you've been in the game for a few years. What do you Tony, think? Tony, I'm you're... Australian. We don't talk about ourselves in that way. Well, it's, you know, this is a breaking down of the barriers on discipline. We're, we're, getting, we're getting to the beating heart of the individual and... Uh, it's critical assessment time. It's introspection time. What, what do you think your key strengths are as an entrepreneur? 
I think what I said before, where I just genuinely enjoy, I think I'm less, uh, Dean and I are both, we're less interested in a, in a dollar amount. Our growth and marketing team gets a bit annoyed with us because we suck at setting goals for metrics. We go out of our way to do it because it's important to do. Um, I find it limiting. I, I like to go, okay, how, how far can we fly this thing? Um, and so as part of that, what I really love is what I've said to you before is having nothing and making something of it. So we never came into this business and we'll never come into another business and say, uh, I want to create a unicorn or a billion dollar or a million dollar business. So, yeah, so I'm, I, I've just, well, I think one of my strengths is, is really enjoying making sense of mess and organizing it and, and making it work for you. Um, and loving operations. And I think a good uh, balance of, of a mind that, that sees liability, but then approaches it in an optimistic way. So I think it's one thing to see liability in any sense of the word, especially from an operations perspective. Um, so core to business and, and good business, I think it's another thing that, that gets thrown out in the tech industry. It's all about, you know, making the tech or selling the tech, but operations of the business that's just foundational to yep. what you're doing so i think being able to say what, what are our liabilities financially what are our liabilities um uh with the tech itself and security and compliance and and legally and financially uh how do you operate as a global business mm. across with those liabilities in mind across different jurisdictions and um and and then saying, okay, well, here, here are our, our liabilities and, and how are we going to fix this? So the attitude then isn't to be overwhelmed by them, but to find a way to approach them, uh, even if it is one at a time. And then to scale that. Yep. Scaling that is so important. Um, so I, and, and finding the right people, so not, not having the ego to think that you can do it all yourself. So we have the most incredible legal team, legal team, accounting team, well, you, you've you've actually taken my next question. You must be reading my run sheet here. I must be. Uh, hiring and firing people. So, you know, you've identified that you need to surround yourself with some um, some areas of expertise and, you know, good people. Uh, you've obviously uh, had a few, I can only guess, people that haven't uh, come up to the standard you've expected. How, have you improved or have you struggled hiring and firing people in the past have you got that right do you think now i haven't had in my previous roles i've actually never been the 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 i was gonna say the man but you know yeah the man i've never been uh the person who hires and fires or makes that final call definitely giving advice on that or what i think but i've never made had to make the hard call uh yeah, and, and now running our own business, it starts out, it's really difficult, then it gets easier and easier because you have to make good decisions and then you have to be able to make them a, a bit faster. Um, I think people often say what's uh, slow to hire, uh, quick to fire, whatever it is. Yep. I think slow-ish to hire for us, we're careful about the candidates that we hire. We hire more based on attitude than ability or we hire more on ad, based on attitude and potential ability. Uh so, for example, like uh, some of our most amazing employee employees, I think because Dean and I have a background that's not in tech originally, you know, Dean, like I said, music philosophy taught himself to program. Um, so our other dev is has a background as a chef. Um, one of our really fantastic support people 
at the moment also has a back. We, we kind of joke that they're like different versions of the same person also has a background as a chef. Um, so I, I think uh, experience is, is good and necessary for certain positions, but above all attitude uh, and ability to apply yourself yep. in, an, in an unentitled way are probably the, the biggest things that, that we look for. I think firing, you definitely need to fire when it's not working out. You need to acknowledge it. You can't flog a dead horse. Yeah. And uh, cut, the, cut the cord quick. Yeah, cut it quick. And for their benefit as well, there's uh, it's unkind, I think, to to not be honest with someone when something's not working and they're not uh, in a, you know, it's, it's a kindness to say to someone, I actually don't think that this is, where you should be like i don't think this is the industry you should be in or i don't think this is the role that you should be in and here's why yeah um and also in that conversation to probably find out how you haven't benefited or helped them in yeah. that before uh so we we tried out with support in particular which you know like i said is just so important for our business from the beginning and, and to this day we tried out an agency when we were trying to scale support uh, and we weren't quite yet making enough to be able to hire dedicated support people. It was too much of a liability. So we went with an agency and they started out really strong. Uh, and then unfortunately, very quickly, as they brought new people on, it became really hard for us to manage and they did a really terrible job in the end. Uh, and I, I think I let that go on for too long and I had to um, step in and say, hold on a minute, this isn't working um, and then pull that cord really quickly. And then inevitably when you do that, you know, people kind of bounce back and say, hey, we can change this, we can do that. And I think yeah. the most important thing is knowing when to say, I appreciate that and I understand that, but this isn't going to work. Yeah. Like, I, that's it. I'm like, I'm breaking up with you and yes. we're not going to get back together. Like, yeah. it's not happening. Yeah, I think a lot of the time you're right, you know, a leopard doesn't change its spots and... Yeah, it's hard to do you. You know, we all want for the best, especially with people. You're always sort of, I think entrepreneurs are generally optimistic people. So you're always giving people the benefit of the doubt, quite often to your own detriment, hoping yeah. that things will turn or maybe we'll just have a chat and they'll be able to do these things or their attitude will improve. Maybe they're just having a, a bad hair day. But, but as long uh, as you've been honest, right? Like I, I think as long as I, if I can say that I have been absolutely upfront Yes. about how they need to change or, or what's not working and then it's still not changing. Yeah. I think that's when I'm like, okay, well, it's it's just not working. Yeah. I think if I, and it's happened to me a number of times, especially early on, if I haven't been clear, um, then I can't blame someone for not changing something that they might not be aware of. No, you can't. What about then, uh, you know, a member of staff that you can't, hire and fire so easily uh your your husband what what's the most difficult aspect of that when you've got all these views and philosophies um i'm going to assume that uh, he always measures up but what if what if uh, things are starting to uh, take a divergent approach in the way you see an issue how, how do you deal with that and we fight what? it out we right. literally like one of the advantages of living with your co-founder is that you're kind of in a perpetual meeting and we try really hard not to we say okay we're not going to talk about business and then we get excited and start talking about it it's not a negative thing for us it's something we get really excited about we talk about other stuff as well we love talking about food and netflix whatever but then the conversation always will eventually come back to the business 
and yeah, if we really disagree on something, we will fight it out, um, argue back and forth. I come from a European family. When we first met, I think at one point I was upset about something and uh, it wasn't any, it was way before paper form. It wasn't business related. It was something else. And I wasn't angry at Dean. I was upset about something. I can't even remember what it was. And I just threw my shoe across the room and I'll look on his face because he comes from an Anglo-Saxon family, Scottish English heritage, um, very passive, very passive in a lot of ways. I I just remember the look on his face, his jaw dropped and he was like, I just don't even know what to do in this situation. I could see his mind working. Um, So we've really balanced each other out. I've I've become much more mellow. He's he's become more fiery, which I love and, and, and not just fiery, but more vocal, really vocal when, yeah. and, and okay with conflict. I think I'm very good with, I'm fine with conflict. Dean maybe wasn't to begin with and, and we've balanced each other out in a good way. And we've learned to, uh, to really talk about the issue at hand rather than let our egos get in the way that, and that takes, a, that took a lot of years of fighting back and forth. So yeah, in terms of differences of opinion, you know, we're in this in this tech world environment, in particular led by you know Silicon Valley um, in California, and uh, a lot of these companies, even in Australia now, are taking political stances, political positions on hot button topics. What's your position on taking a position? Just an easy an easy question there for me, Tony. We are. We are not into virtue signaling at all. Um, you know, where our stance is that we are a business um, and that we're not a political entity. And uh, w- because we hire people without discrimination uh, and we don't, you know, oftentimes we, we, most of the time I can pretty much safely say we don't pry unless it comes up naturally. We don't pry into people's personal opinions about things. Yep. Uh, we feel that we don't, we don't want to represent a certain viewpoint um, that could potentially not represent one of our employees or feed into some kind of di- discrimination against our employees. Um, but I think, you know, and the same goes for our customer base as well. It's incredibly diverse and, um, our stance is is that we're a business, we're not a political institution. Um, and I think more importantly for me, and it's, it's kind of ironic for me personally, um, but for me, I I think what I see more often than not is the use of, of uh, a political stance for gain. And I find that pretty disgusting, to be honest with you. Yeah. So it might be that I feel really, really passionate about... Um, about something, for example, at the moment, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, um, equality uh, and raising up of of black people is something that that I do feel really passionate about. Um, I feel that there's inequality there, um, and the the idea for me to put a massive banner or even a, a more subtle banner on our product that says we support this in a way that could potentially see greater sales or some kind of an advantage from a business perspective uh, kind of horrifies me. Mm. So there's a big, a huge part of this in not virtual signaling is is ensuring that we're not in any way, shape or form um, benefiting, especially if it's a cause, like say, for example, something that's not political, like the bushfires, well, largely not political. 
Um, there are a lot of people doing like dollar for dollar campaigns for fundraising. And again, personally, I just didn't, that didn't make sense to me. Um, any kind of uh, public campaign, I think if you were just doing a fundraising campaign, that's fine. But doing this dollar for dollar or a percentage of our sales uh, and making that public, I, I, I just don't buy into it. I think it, it's too, it feeds too much into growth yeah. and marketing. And- Philanthropy used to be something that people used to do in private. I got it. Uh, the best the best response I heard to it, and a friend of mine has uh, done incredibly well in business, his response was, I do not discriminate. I will take everybody's money equally. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's right. That's a nice way to look at it. Um, so, look, just uh, we're, we're heading towards the, the end of the the interview, so uh, we always finish yeah, off a, a, a quick fire round. So who has been a professional inspiration to you? Uh, my manager at Google, Kate Lauterbach, shout out to her because, yeah, she was incredible. Uh, the kindest thing anyone's ever said to you? Oh, I want to back you. If you got hit by a bus today and killed, uh, I hope you don't, but if you did, what has that bus is bearing down on you, what, what's the one thing you'd say, oh, I wish I'd done that? Um, I wish I'd not gone eaten, back to Italy. Not eaten sushi in Berlin. No, in, in, I wish I'd gone Munich. back to Italy. Right, well, there's my next question. Uh, if you could go anywhere, go anywhere in the world for lunch now, where would you go? Yeah, I, I would go probably to the Amalfi Coast, yeah. Favourite movie? Oh, okay. Favourite movie, Hook or Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Okay. Favourite singer? So many. It's got to be Brandon Flowers from The Killers. Got to be. What culture fascinates you? Oh, Japanese culture. What advice would you give to young entrepreneurs? Focus less on money and professional development and focus more on doing work and and jobs that you can just engross yourself in. Just focus on your I think that's probably the best advice from especially, you know, talked about employees before, from um, from seeing watching people come under your wing and in your business is a stress less about professional development milestones and and just enjoy the tasks and just get lost in what you're doing brilliant well Dionne thank you very much for sharing uh, some fascinating insights into yourself and your journey good luck with pay perform I'm sure there'll be some people knocking at the door again uh, talking acquisition or capital in no time Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure Uh, thank you for being on discipline thank you so much Tony it's been really fun